Hello, and welcome to the Family Histories podcast, the show for and about those of us who are sat quietly in archives, libraries, and spare rooms all around the world, piecing together our collective social and family history. I'm your host, Andrew Martin, and I've been researching my entire family history since 1995. In this episode, The Swindler, we'll be delving into the world of fiction. We'll be hearing about some dodgy dealings in 19th century East Sussex in England, and we're looking for the relatives of an 18th century ancestor in Westminster, London. So, put down those bishop's transcripts, grab a cuppa, and let's meet our guest. To be honest, writing an introduction for today's guest was very daunting, as he could write his own one a million times better with his eyes closed. But my guest is an absolute genealogy fanatic, and if that's not enough to keep him busy, he also just happens to be a successful genealogical crime mystery author. He has brought us the worlds of Morton Farrier, Mrs. McDougall, and the Venator Cold Case team. But enough with this blurb. It's time to start a new chapter as we meet today's guest, Nathan Dylan Goodwin. Hello, Nathan. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I'm sure many of the listeners will recognise the series of books and the characters that I've just mentioned there. But what I'd really like to know first is, how did this all begin? What was it that got you interested in family history? So I started when I was about um, 12 years old, so quite a long time ago now. And yeah, I got into doing the, mainly in my, my grandmother's maiden name, Dengates. Okay. She was one of those wonderful people that just kept everything. Lots of photographs with all the names written on the back and newspaper Perfect. cuttings and lots of stuff. And um, so, yeah, so I would sit there as a 12-year-old, not having the faintest clue uh, what I was doing. Um, and just basically writing out um, the family tree, always with me at the centre of it, obviously. Of course. But, uh, yeah, the family was, that, that family, the Dengates, they were quite close, based in Hastings and the villages around there. So I really knew the names I was writing down, I kind of, I knew who they were. They were familiar to me, even though they were actually quite distant family members. And lots of them were buried in the cemetery nearby. So my nan would take me there and I would see them. So... Yeah, it kind of started about that time and I, I was quite um, clever, I suppose, at the time of, I thought I was anyway, uh, at interviewing some older relatives, including my great-great-auntie Elsie. Um, she was born in 1895, but I interviewed her and asked kind of basically really silly, silly questions I can see in hindsight. Things like, can you tell me your aunts and uncles' names? Can you tell me their children's names? All this stuff that I could find now in, you know, a few seconds on Ancestry. Whereas what I should have asked her. But uh, what you wouldn't have known at the time was that this thing called the internet was going to come along and that big companies like Ancestry or Find My Past, My Heritage or Family Search, etc., would have a whole load of records online for you to browse. No, I wouldn't have, I know I wouldn't at the time, yeah. But I should have been saying, like, what was your life like as a child and what was your parents' personalities and, you know. So I had this wonderful resource there but didn't really make the most of it. But, yeah, that's where it all started. And I kind of I have carried on since then. And, obviously, as an adult, I was then able to start um, buying certificates and actually trying to figure out how to do it properly and um so yeah and then moved on to various well all branches really of my family tree um but I've always 
kept the Dengates there at the at the forefront. So it's, I've got it registered as a one name study, and I run the the DNA group. So yeah, it's been a long time. So do you have the benefit of uh, having all your relatives kind of contained within one place, uh, all there together? Um, I think I've heard you mentioned the south of England before. They're, they're very much. Um, I don't think it's as bad as yours coming from just from Cambridgeshire, <laughs> but pretty well London and south of there is that covers 90% of my family, yes. They're not very exotic at all. Oh, but sometimes when they're uh, all there together in amongst the same village or neighbouring villages, that just makes it easier. You don't have to look very far. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, I, I come from Hastings in East Sussex, but I now live in Kent, so <laughs> I don't have to go very far either. If I find someone's buried in a certain churchyard, it's never you know too far to go and have a look and see if I can find a grave or you know the, the, the record offices aren't that far. So that's one good thing about that. So when you're researching your family, do you have a favourite type of genealogical resource? Uh, is there like a safe place in your researching that you like to go to first? Yeah, I, I really like looking at the parish chest but not necessarily just the um just the traditional baptism marriage and burial records but actually look at what that particularly if it's a small um parish church because then i found more actually for for the writing side of things is where i kind of came upon those more okay. um you find lots of information that just isn't a, a big it's not a big resource so it hasn't been transcribed by the, by the big by the big companies because yeah. it's just a, a very small thing but because it's a small rural parish you can find a few uh you know familiar names in there and things like poor relief and yeah. that kind of uh information I, I i like that i like to just delve into a parish particularly if my ancestors have you know had a big time period in that um vicinity you know if i know they've been there for a couple of hundred years it's good to really delve in and, and look at what's going on um even if um, even if I can't find my family, it's good to know what's going on, you know, in the area. So while you're researching, you're obviously building or mapping out uh, this whole world of your uh, family history. But what I really can't understand is how on earth you can detach your ancestral reality from your fictional world that you've created uh, through your books. I think I get so confused as to whether I'm looking at someone and thinking, is that a relative or is that a character? I'm not sure. <laughs> How do you cope? It's quite tricky, actually. I do I do find those very often because the books that I'm writing are generally also set in the southeast because I'm a bit lazy, so it's just <laughs> easier to, to set them around here. Um, and so I inevitably go to a record office or a library or a churchyard where I do have family. And so in a good, in sometimes it's a good way because I can just kill two birds with one stone. I can go to the Sussex record office and I can do a bit of writing and then a bit of <laughs> genealogy for myself. Um, but yeah, occasionally I'm looking at something and I think it's for the book. And I think, oh, actually, I just need to look and see if that I find I can find that same record and see if any of my relatives are in there. So, yeah, there, there is a bit of overlap there. So I guess your research discoveries kind of shaped your books in some ways? Yes, yeah. I, I mean, my like I said, my, my ancestors are quite um, aglabby from the southeast of England, so <clears throat> there's not too much excitement there. But inevitably, yeah, I do, I do find in, in the course of um, 
doing my own genealogy, I do find stories and things that, although it's not my own family, I think, oh, that would that would be interesting. That would that could make its own a good story. You know, in newspapers and things, I get I do get very sidetracked when I open up newspapers and I think, oh, that's an interesting story. That's and then you know, no, concentrate on what you're doing. <laughs> Um, in the Forensic Genealogist series, uh, Morton finds it challenging to deal with the abrasive archive matriarch, Deirdre Latimer. Now, I've heard you talk about her and the inspiration in other interviews. Um, so I would love to know whether you think that the real life inspiration for that character knows that you write books, knows of your books, and therefore has become aware that there is a fictional incarnation of her. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, funny enough, somebody I, I spoke to somebody who worked there, and um, I said, "Do you know who it is?" And, and she said, "Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about." Um, so I do. I do worry when I turn up there for research and they see, "Oh, Nathan Dillon Goodwin's here." You know what's going to happen. So um, I don't know, and I'm not very good at. I should be a bit better at saying she's not based on a real person. She's actually, you know kind of uh, an amalgamation of people but um no i kind of broadcast it so i don't i don't know if it's got back to her <laughs> well you know maybe she has moved on to greater or better things who knows maybe yeah yeah the the, the trouble the trouble is when i go to to these uh, archives particularly it seems to be particularly east sussex record office and i go there to do uh, work for the book it's more about making sure the process is accurate and the content of the document is accurate. So I'll go up to her and I'll take a document and I'll take a photograph of the outside. I'll look in the inside, take some pictures and some examples. And then I'm kind of, I'm done with it. I don't actually need to look at the whole ledger. And so two minutes later, I'm handing it back to her and going, can I have my next one, please? And she gives me my next one and then I take and I do the same thing. And I think she's thinking, you can't be a serious researcher if 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 you can look in a document and have done the whole thing apparently in two minutes. And so <laughs> she must be thinking, who is this total amateur doing his family tree? Yeah, so yeah, exactly. And so she kind of just stands over arms folded, kind of glaring. I mean I, I kind of have made her a bit worse than, than she is in real life, but um there's one in every archive. Well, whether she's there or not, um, I'm sure that she is a lovely lady <laughs> and that your perception of her is massively yes. wrong. It's probably just me, actually. You know, She's probably lovely. So I know that you've written a few uh, historical non-fiction books about the area that your family is from. Uh, but I'd be really interested to know whether it's easier to write historical non-fiction or historically based fiction. Uh, that's a good question. Um I think it's actually harder to do the fiction, bizarrely, okay. because doing the non-fiction, it very much is just don't put any of my personal thoughts or opinions or don't try and dramatise it. Keep it, you know, completely unbiased <laughs> and be as factual as, you know, as, as I could be. Um but still trying to tell a story, but really focusing on the facts of the matter, not what I think might have happened. Or Whereas with writing historical fiction, I'm still trying to be factual in the background. So, for example, if I'm writing about the First World War, I'll do a lot of research and I'll be trying to make sure that um, 
what I'm describing is going on is actually true, but I'm also trying to add in the fictional element. So to try and marry those two up accurately and correctly and um, in a way that the reader will find interesting is actually more tricky. So what advice would you have to a family historian who intends to write, you know, that book and they're going to write the book that they've always wanted to write, but they have not even started? What advice could you give to them? It's a tricky one because I think I get asked this quite often and I think it kind of depends on your who your reader, who you anticipate your reader is. If you're writing something to entertain your um just your family and to bring family history to life perhaps for them to make it a bit more interesting then I would say try and keep out all the long list of facts that you've um, procured and put them as end notes so don't don't say he was born on this date he was baptized in this place try and you know try and make it a bit more interesting keep keep those facts there but put them as end notes if someone wants to know exactly where they were baptized and everything um and I think look into more into the social history of what was going on at the time, particularly in their village or town. So to try to try to say what life would have been like, I think, for them, you know, to say uh, what was going on, how, you know, you can kind of gauge from even from basic records like the census, you can gauge how poor they would have been and therefore, what, you know, what their wages would have been and what life. There are lots of books out there that you can supplement what your, your own research with. Um, but I think if you're trying to go down the fictional route, um, then I think the, the best advice is to just pick pick an ancestor or pick somebody who really strikes a chord with you and you think they could have an interesting story and just go for it. Just just start to write something. Um, because, it, yeah, I think lots of people say, yeah, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it. So I think just get on and write something you can always delete it later whereas if you haven't written anything there's you know there's nothing to delete so um yeah to, to try to yeah just to get on with it <laughs> <laughs> well uh hopefully that has inspired uh some guests uh maybe it's uh, also inspired me to write that uh book that i always want to do yeah, just get on with it <laughs> <laughs> yes okay so who are your favorite authors and uh, have they inspired or influenced the way that you write your own books? Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I like a really broad range of um, of books, and so I kind of alternate between um, police procedural uh, books, like Peter James's uh, book and um, uh, Ian Rankin and people like that, and then I go to. Um, factual books and then I go to other genealogical crime mysteries so I really like Steve Robinson's books I like MJ Lee's Wendy Percival's um and Stephen Molyneux's so I kind of alternate between all of those books and then I'll, I'll go on to a factual book that I, it was relevant to my research um and yeah I, I find all, all of those inspiring in 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 various ways really uh, one of my friends writes under the nom de plume of Anthony Camber, and he's had several books, but he has this concept of a brewing drawer. I don't know whether it's a real drawer or just figuratively speaking, which is where after he's written a new book, he puts it in this brewing drawer and he leaves it there for a few months. And then he'll come back to it much later on and, and go through it and edit it and rewrite sections. Is that a concept that's <laughs> familiar to you as well? Do you have a brewing drawer? I, I totally, totally understand that. And actually, um, 
I, I usually uh, stupidly start to, as I get near the end of a book, I start to broadcast it all over the world. <laughs> I've finished, and then, and then of course, the follow-up questions from readers uh, is, you know, when's it out, when's it out? And I, and I go, oh, um, you know, and, and I give it a two, two shorter dates. Oh, and I'm then under real pressure to, to meet these uh, <laughs> things that I've said. Um, uh, the one I'm, I've just finished uh, writing, um, Morton book nine actually it was really good because i have been forced because of just the summer holidays and uh, various things going on at home i've been forced to just put it in the in the brewing drawer um and it's really good to come now come back to it with fresh eyes because there definitely is a sense of when i've finished writing a book i then go back to the beginning and go through and edit it and yes you, you know obviously i find mistakes or things i'd like to improve and change but you do get this wood for the trees thing where you, you know, I can read something five times and then someone will say, there's a, there's a word missing there. And my brain every time has put that word back in. Um, so I, I should have a, 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 you know, a bigger time really to come to the editing, but it's also my least favorite part of writing. I just, I, I love the research. I love the writing and it gets to the end. And I think I don't, I don't want to have to reread it 20 times. <laughs> Yeah, I guess after you've been uh, writing it for that long and editing as you go along, you don't want to have to read it all those times to then spot something else and then remove that. And then you have a chain reaction of events that you have to then eradicate from your book or completely change the ending because you've removed a character or changed something that they've done. I'm pretty good that I I sort of edit as I go. That's not to say, like I say, by the end, there isn't anything to do. Of course there is, but I do tend to go back over what I've done like the day before and I'll reread it and start back at the beginning of the chapter that I'm working on and just I'll edit it there and then and think that doesn't make sense or I've missed stuff out or I don't like that rather than I know some writers just go for it and don't do any editing until the end so I do do quite a lot as I go through um, which usually uh, means that when I get to the end I don't have to do a massive edit so I've I've never had the thing of I need to now move chapter 20 into chapter 13 and delete chapter 6 and that doesn't tend to happen touch wood <laughs> so how many books are brewing if we stick with that phrase <laughs> well um got a whiteboard about 20 or so book ideas up there that are just bullet points to remind me um some are Morton, some are Venator, some are uh, other ideas. And I've got notes on my phone and I've got notes in my emails. And so I've got <laughs> loads and loads of ideas, but I, that, that's really good for me. It's, um, I like to just be able to sit on a really basic idea and let it brew. Um, you know, even if I'm not going to be writing it for another three years, um, I can then think, oh, this, this idea has just come to me or I've, happened upon a record that I know will fit Morton 12 even though I'm just on Morton 9 and I know I won't be at that point for a long time you know so yeah that's kind of uh, I've got a lot of ideas so yeah you'll be you won't be uh, getting rid of me just yet <laughs> <laughs> good um I saw that you were tweeting about Morton number nine so I'm glad that you've also just mentioned it can you give us a sneaky clue or a teaser of a character or something in it <laughs> come on i just want an exclusive here nathan don't let me down so it picks up on some of the loose threads from um 
the Sterling Affair. Okay. So Morton's going to be spending a lot of his time trying to work out the uh, biological mother of his half-aunt and her two half-sisters. Okay. Um, His grandfather gets several of his own chapters. Oh, okay. And another major character is a policewoman called Cathy Steadman, and that's all you have him. Oh. (laughs) Because otherwise I'll just keep talking and you'll have the whole book. (laughs) Well, listeners, you can't say I didn't try. (laughs) But I guess it stops you from coming back to me and going, can you just remove this bit? Oh, Andrew, can you just remove that bit? And uh, I didn't mean to say that bit. Can you remove that too? I'm giving too much away. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Can you cut that whole bit, please? Yeah. It's time now for Relatively Speaking, the part of the show where my guest picks one of their most fascinatingly good, bad, or just plain ugly relatives and tells their life story. So, Nathan, who are you going to introduce us to? So, I'm going to introduce you to uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, who was called Silas Thomas. Um, He's not really good, bad, or ugly. He's just a bit naughty, I think. Okay. So... Silas was born in 1834 in Mountfield in East Sussex um, to Richard and Jane Thomas. He was the eighth of 11 children and his dad was a, a beer housekeeper. Um, on the 1851 census, he was um, li- like lots of my family. He was an ag lab working in Mountfield as a 17-year-old. Um, but by the end of uh, that decade, he was working as a bricklayer. Um in 1859, he married my great-great-great-grandmother, Caroline Foster, in Mountfield Church. And on the census two years later, he was still living in Mountfield with Caroline and his first daughter, who was my great-great-grandmother, called Agnes Lucy Thomas. Um, also at this time, which is slightly relevant to the story, his younger sister, also another Agnes, Agnes Melissa Thomas, she married a man called Stephen Willett, and um, he became quite important in a, an event in Silas's life. That's why I'm, I'm mentioning him. So this event uh, started rather quietly on the morning of the 12th of January, 1863, on Taylor's farm in Mountfield, when an agricultural labourer named William Butcher was ploughing in Barnfield when he discovered something. Um, so in William Butcher's own words, he said... And I won't do a Sussex accent, Andrew, because I know. I think you said my. I think you said my American accent sounded Welsh before. <laughs> I do not remember saying that <laughs> yeah, at all. I think you did. No, I didn't. Um, so I won't do the Sussex accent, but it kind of sounds a bit Cornish. So I just do it in my own accent. Okay. So th- this uh, William Butcher said, "I ploughed up a long piece of metal. It was a yard long with two trumpets, one at each end, and twisted in three grooves. We found a great many rings." Some were larger than others. The larger rings were round, but did not shut to. My boy Stephen took them home in his lap and put them in the stables. They stayed there a little time, and then I took them into my home and showed them to my wife and neighbours. The next morning, my master, Thomas Adams, came to the stable, and I showed them to him. He said he did not know what they were and gave no direction. They remained in the stable. So the farm owner, Thomas Adams, thought that the items were brass, but William Butcher, who found it, he wasn't convinced. So he took them to a Mrs. Welsh, a shopkeeper in Robertsbridge, who bought old metal, and she said they were made of iron. So, but William Butcher still wasn't convinced. 
So he turned, I don't know, I don't know why, but he turned to my great-great-great-grandfather, Silas Thomas, and asked his opinion on the matter. So again, back to William's words on the matter. Silas came up and saw the metal. He made no observations. In a few days after we spoke, he said, have you sold that brass yet? I said, no. He said, I've got a brother-in-law at Hastings who buys old brass. He would give you sixpence or sevenpence a pound for it. Silas added, I don't do it for my own interest, but you have a large family, which I think shows that Silas is a wonderful man here, obviously, and not thinking of himself or anything else. So Silas weighed these metal objects in a hand steel yard and basket, finding that the metal weighed 11 pounds, and he very kindly gave William Butcher five shillings and sixpence for the metal, um, which according to the National Archives currency converter, uh, five and six in the 1860s was the equivalent of a day's wages for a labourer, and in 2017 would be about 16 pounds. So I think it was, I think Silas was being very generous. <laughs> Now, I know that some listeners to the podcast are probably thinking that the metal maybe wasn't brass after all. Um, yeah, I'm leaning in that direction as well. Yeah, and those were the rumours that were uh, circulating around Mountfield after the discovery. So on the 22nd of February, which is just over a month after they were found, William Butcher met up with Silas Thomas again, and he said, Silas, I want to speak to you. Silas said, what do you want to talk about? About this brass? I said, there's a great deal of talk about it. People talk about it and say it's gold. People think you have more money than you ought to have. (laughs) And Silas does admit here that perhaps it isn't just brass and told William that my brother-in-law, Stephen Willett in Hastings, has got it and he thinks it might have silver in it and it may be worth two or three pounds. (laughs) But if it is, then you should have your part of it. So, okay. And at this point, William Butcher goes with Silas to Silas's mother's house because Stephen Willett is there, presumably with his wife visiting her mother. And Stephen Willett isn't very best pleased at being accused. And he says, "Um, what's that to anybody if I like to buy old brass? To which William Butcher replied, my master wants to see a bit and that will satisfy everyone. And Willett replied, no, if he wants to see a piece, let him come and see me. So obviously Silas and Stephen Willett are clearly not wanting people to see the metal, um, mainly because they'd already disposed of it by then. So, but undeterred, William Butcher returns to Barnfield where he found the metal. And luckily for him, he'd put a stick in the hole where he discovered it. And he found two more pieces. Uh Ah, okay. Which he took to his master, Mr. Adams, and left them with him. Mm -hmm. The same day... Thomas Adams took the metal to the superintendent of police who had the metal tested by the village blacksmith, Joseph Sindon. And he said, my first impression was that the metal was brass. I tested it with aquafortis and found it was gold. <laughs> Shock horror. Yeah. The metal was, the metal was gold. Big surprise there. Um, so then on 24th February, the police superintendent, John Thompson, had these uh, two extra pieces of gold um, and he paid a late night visit to my great-great-grandfather and he asked what he'd done with the gold and Silas replied I sold it to my brother-in-law Stephen Willett in Hastings and the policeman then said do you know that it's reported to be gold and Silas answered I don't know I bought it for brass and sold it for brass I gave five and sixpence for it 
and my brother-in-law gave me the same. The superintendent then went on to see Stephen Willett, um, who said he'd sold the metal, but refused to give the, the name of the person he gave it to. Okay. I, I'm sure it was just a pure coincidence, mm-hmm. but Stephen Willett gave pretty well the same answer as, as Silas gave. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they didn't rehearse it. But he said, I gave sixpence a pound for it and sold it for sixpence halfpenny. I bought it for brass and I sold it for brass. <laughs> so both men were, were denying any knowledge of the metal being gold. I don't actually know whether Silas uh, knew or not. Before he sold it to his brother-in-law, he did actually take it to a shop in battle and was told by a shopkeeper that it was gold. But oh, okay. Perhaps he, I don't know, perhaps he wasn't certain. It clearly didn't look gold until it had that... Um, nitric acid uh, tested okay. on it but Stephen Willett on the other hand um, he and his father were blacksmiths um, so he probably should have known his metals and he actually had been in California as part of the gold rush so he okay. definitely knew <laughs> that that was gold I'm sure yeah. of it um, so what happened to it uh, prior to the police discovery that the metal was gold Stephen Willett had taken some of it to a jeweller's shop in Castle Street in Hastings where he sold it to the owner, John Murray, and he told him that it was Californian gold because apparently Californian gold is, is more pure than other forms. I don't know why. And so he was paid £18 and 15 shillings for it. So he made a, a pretty good profit there. The, this, this jeweller then took it to Hatton Gardens where he was told that it wasn't uh, Californian gold after all. And so he actually lost money on it. Um, and... The rest of the gold, Silas and Stephen went up to London um, and they sold it, receiving a grand sum of £529, 13 shillings and 7 pence. Wow. Which in... (laughs) A lot. It's a lot of money, yeah. And on the National Archives um, currency converter for 2017, that would have been £31,000 just over. So, yeah, a huge amount. That's worth having. A huge amount of money. Um, but uh, they weren't particularly clever people because they returned back home and they were really flaunting their yeah. money and really showing off. Okay. And Stephen Willett was trying to buy a house. And <laughs> he was really, I, I don't know if it's that they just weren't particularly clever or that they didn't think they'd particularly broken any laws because they just, they, they were maintaining this. We thought it was brass, we paid for it, you know, as brass. And then we've now discovered it's gold and we've sold it on and made less money. So <laughs> It's like um, the cash in the attic programme. Yeah, it's exactly that. Um, and uh, Stephen Sides went to Beeching Bank in Hastings and they opened an account there and put £300 in. Um, but they really didn't think, obviously, that there would be any serious consequences. Um, but the superintendent uh, of police, John Thompson, was actually... He arrested Stephen Willett on the charge of unlawfully detaining a quantity of gold which had come into his possession. And so Willett um, alone at this point was bailed to appear before the special petty sessions. But for the first time since this uh, metal had been discovered, the phrase of treasure trove was being banded around, which drew the attention of the Crown. Um, Yeah, funny that. Um, And the the term treasure trove basically means that an object has to be over 50% gold or silver, and was hidden with the intention of later being recovered as opposed to being lost or dropped. So now the Crown uh, are getting involved. Oh, dear. Um, And the the key point about this law is that uh, 
that it's the duty of the finder or anyone knowing of it to report it to the local coroner, which obviously Silas and uh, Stephen didn't do. Um, so it was determined that a coroner's inquest should be held on the 27th of March, 1863 at John's Cross Inn. A jury was assembled, witnesses were called and evidence was presented, which is where I've got those first-hand accounts from William Butcher about who said, who said what. Um, Silas Thomas was present throughout the proceedings, but um, I don't know why, but Stephen Willett wasn't. Uh, the coroner said that there was little doubt that the gold artefacts were of great antiquity and they were probably 2,000 years old, which the historian in me I just has to apologise to, to, to the world because there's this 2,000-year-old gold and they've sold it to this guy who's taken it to Hatton Garden and they've taken their own pieces to Hatton Garden. And it was all melted down. So this 2,000-year-old gold that was part of um, a suit of armour and was intricately um, uh, carved, whatever the word is for gold, was melted and is all gone. So I do apologise to the world on behalf of my um, great-great-grandfather. Oh, no. And the irony was, actually, that the British Museum would have actually likely, even back then, paid them the full value to have been able to take hold of that to um, exhibit it. But there we are. Um, You're probably going to have a lifetime ban from the British Museum. Yes. Uh, well, actually, the two, pieces that, <laughs> the two pieces that did survive that William Butcher went back to find, which was the kind of proving uh, what they were, they're actually now in the British Museum. Good. So I'm, I'm going to try and go up, but I might go up and pretend I'm a diff- under a different name. <laughs> it's nothing to do with me. I won't admit to it. Um, but the jury found um, that Stephen Willett and Silas Thomas were guilty of knowing the value of the gold and that they were conspiring to sell it and keep the proceeds. Um, and the Attorney General's advice was that Stephen Willett and Silas Thomas should be prosecuted for concealment of a, a treasure trove. So they were then bailed until the summer Sussex Assizes on the 24th of July 1863, where there was another court case and they were again found guilty and again bailed and now back home um, until December, where they were both brought back to the bench before Baron Piggott at the Lewis Winter Assizes for sentences. And they were both sentenced to pay a fine of £265 each um, and to be imprisoned until the amounts were paid. I don't know what they did with all their money, but they were basically, they were unable to pay their fines. So a few days before Christmas, 1863, they were sent to Lewis Prison and um, their sentence was just, it was just open-ended. Until they repaid their money, they, they, weren't, they weren't allowed out. Like a debtor's prison. Yeah. And so my great-great-grandmother, Caroline, was left to look after the two children and she was pregnant with their, with their third child. Oh. Um, and so I don't, I don't know how they were going to prove that they'd, money was gone from the sale, but that's basically what they were waiting for. When the money from the gold was gone, they'd be let out. And actually, it was they were in there for a year. And the case kind of gets a bit bizarre here because according to an article in the December 1864 edition of the Liverpool Mercury, it said, it said that a piano teacher named Mrs Kirby had written to Queen Victoria telling her of the men's plight and asking the Queen to have the men released. The article said that the Queen's secretary had replied, having looked into the case, and the two men were subsequently released from jail. 
which I find very strange. And the uh, Hastings and St Leonard's News confirmed as well that Mr Sanders, the governor of the prison, was given an order to release the men. So I find that <laughs> completely strange if, that, if that's true. It's, it's uh, documented in the newspapers, but who knows if it is true. But that the Queen, um, still in mourning for, for her husband, had this <laughs> letter from a random piano teacher asking for them to be released, and apparently they were. Oh, that's a bit unexpected. I wonder who the all-powerful piano teacher was. Yeah, I don't know. Mrs Kirby, I don't have any information as to if she was just concerned for them or she... I don't know if she knew them. It's it's all very strange. Um, So they came out of prison. They had to then be declared bankrupt in the the years, uh, in the months following their release. Um, And so that big... uh, bit of drama was over for, for Silas and by 1871 he'd moved his growing family to Hastings where he settled to uh, thankfully a non-criminal career and he became a gas retort setter for the Hastings and St Leonard's Gas Company and he worked there until his death. By all accounts of what I can find at least he learned from his mistakes and became a well-respected member of the community and he was he joined the Salvation Army there in Hastings. Um, he died at the age of 68 on the 16th of June 1902 from a brain hemorrhage and he was buried in Hastings Cemetery. Um, his obituary recalls his long employment with the gas company and his activities with the Salvation Army. But um, funnily enough, it omits any reference to his involvement with the Mountfield treasure trove or his year in prison. So, um, yeah. Yeah, not a high point. <laughs> no. So that's, uh, that's my, my great-great-grandfather. Well, thank you, Nathan, for telling us all about your naughty ancestor, Silas Thomas. Um, I wonder if there is a fortune out there somewhere in a field in Sussex. I should go and look. I need to go back to Barnfield with a metal detector. Well, keep us posted. But for now, I think it's time to face... The Brick Wall. Brick walls are annoying. They're those dead ends in your research. They might last a few hours, a weekend, years, or maybe even never get resolved thanks to missing, damaged, or records that were just never kept. In this part of the show, it's where you, the listeners, have a chance to gather the clues given by my guest and can have a go at turning their brick wall to rubble. So, Nathan... What have you got for us? So my brick wall is it's my longest standing one and it's also the most embarrassing one because it's actually my Goodwin line. Oh, okay. Um, you know, you think... Awkward. You, you, yeah, you think, you know, I write about these um, genealogists who can solve anything and do anything, but I can't get my own surname back very far. Um, it's not your grandparent, is it? <laughs> it's a, a little bit further back, but not too much further, actually. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, so my four times great grandfather was called Thomas Goodwin, um, possibly with the middle name of Peter. He married Mary Austin on the seventeenth of August, eighteen hundred, in St Mary. Uh, sorry, St Martin in the Fields Church, Westminster, which is the church that's um, now overlooking Trafalgar Square. Yeah, um, I know it. I yeah. yeah. Um, so Thomas and Mary had 11 children. Their first was called Thomas Peter Goodwin, and he was born in Longacre, Middlesex, and baptised in St Clement Danes Church, Westminster. But the rest of their children, 
including my three times great-grandfather, Charles Goodwin, who was born 1818 in Lambeth. The rest of them were all born on the other side of the river, so Lambeth, Streatham and Stockwell in Surrey. Okay. Um, Thomas died in November 1846 in Stockwell, and he was buried in St Matthew's Church, Brixton. Unfortunately, because he died pre-1851 census, I've got no exact birth date or location for him. But his death certificate and burial information point to a birth around 1781. Okay. The 1841 census, I've, I've got him on there, and he's living in Water Lane in Brixton. And he says no to having been born in the county of Surrey. So it kind of points towards probably um, the fact that he may have come from the other side, where he basically where he married, so the Westminster, Middlesex area, so the other side of the water. But I don't have anything other than the fact that he married there and his first child was born there to, to base that on. Um, the problem is the parishes in, that, in both sides of the river are huge, and Goodwin um, is quite a common name around those parts. Um, so I just can't find... Um, a Thomas Goodwin, born around 1781, that fits the bill. And if I start to widen the search and go, say, within a 10-year window of that, I'm finding lots of Thomas Goodwins, and I don't know which one is is my oh, Thomas. Yeah. So I've done wire testing, um, and there's nobody obvious. I, I match with another Goodwin, um, descended from my great, great, great grandfather. But I see somebody I asked to take the test to kind of prove the Y line to there. Um, and general DNA, autosomal DNA is quite tricky because it's right on the cusp of, you know, it's kind of at that point. I, I'm, so I'm seeing matches to lots of people, to Thomas and Mary's other children. So I know they're they're all linked to me but to go up a further generation to try and find people that i'm related to via thomas's uh, siblings it's you're getting down into kind of 20 30 centimorgans of of dna and pe- these people just just you know I, I can't see how i'm related to yeah, them yeah the so, dna trail just gets weaker and weaker i'm a bit stuck with with him really and it's been it's been years and I kind of I go back to it every now and then and I think oh, I'll try I'll try this I'll, I'll see if any new um, DNA matches have come up and they haven't I've got I had a couple of people um, who were quite a bit older than me that I know are definitely related on the Goodwin side I've had them DNA tested so I generally use their DNA as the uh, the triangulation you know between those mm-hmm. two and who else do, do they match rather yeah. than me because they're, they're two generations above me okay um but yeah there's still nothing that's really obvious and i would love to go back <laughs> on my on my goodwin line just to get yeah past him find out who his parents were find out who his brothers and sisters were did you say that he's sometimes thomas peter goodwin yes yeah so in, in on some of his um children's marriage certificates some like my three times great grandfather Charles Goodwin just said he was Thomas Goodwin. Some of them say Thomas Peter and on his death certificate it said Thomas Peter. So I've kind of um I don't know for certain if if there definitely is it's not on his marriage um 
entry for St Martin in the Fields, which is the only thing I've got with his own information that he's supplied. Yeah, I was just wondering, because sometimes you get people who have two names and maybe they prefer one of them over the other one and they just swap them around from time to time. Yeah, could be. And did you say that his wife's name was Mary Austin? Mary Austin, yes. Have you been able to get any further back with her line, just in case there are some locations that might be good candidates to check? It's a, it's a similar situation, really. Um, there are lots of Austins around. Yeah, I've got I've got a feeling I, I possibly there's there's somebody that does fit the bill for Mary Austin, but I'm just I don't have anything other than that baptism record, and so I'm not I'm not happy to say it's definitely her because that's that's all I have. It's not enough for me to go on, but there are certainly um, Austins and Goodwins around St Martin in the Fields. Um, Westminster area and on their marriage entry which um, they didn't sign their own names unfortunately which is another thing I was looking at to see if I could look at signatures and things Um, they both said they were of this parish which I know doesn't mean anything Uh, really other than at that moment they were so yeah I'm stuck so if any of the listeners uh, think that they might have a clue What's the best way for them to reach out to you? So the best way probably would go to my website. So that's um, nathandillongoodwin.com. And on my website, there's all the links to social media, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and there's email, etc. Okay, well, we'll also have the show notes for this episode on familyhistoriespodcast.com. And on there, the listeners can uh, click on the contact button. And then if they want to send us a message about uh, your episodes, they can do so. And we will just pass that message on to you uh, and cross our fingers. In the meantime, though, let's imagine you had access to a time machine. Uh, What would be a good kind of date or place uh, that you could go to where you could actually get this information for yourself. So, I mean, would it be a good idea to pick their wedding yeah. day to just be able to go back there and then say, ask him where he came from? That sounds good. So 17th of August, 1800, in St Martin in the Fields Church, Westminster. Okay, well, whilst the listeners uh, go and have a look through the records and search for clues, I think I might just be able to help you with this. But you'll need to follow me through to the garage. <laughs> God. Here we are. What is that? My time machine. Oh, that's a stretch, even for my imagination. All right, Shakespeare. I'll have you know that this is 100% science. And, and, if you sit over there, Shandor and I... Hello! ...will demonstrate. You'll need this, and to press the big button when you're ready to come home. Are you sure? It's a dog toy? Ah, no, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a Canis Lupus Responder. It's very technical. A dog toy? Uh, no, but, um, try this one instead. Big button. Okay, now I've put in the 17th of August 1800, but what was the place again? It's in St Martin in the Fields Church in Westminster. Great. Chandel, that button there. Yes, okay. We're all set. Grab a seat. go. Nathan Dillon Goodwin, thank you, goodbye and good luck. Look, there, his shoes. (laughs) Oh yeah, well that's odd. 
I guess he'll just have to tread carefully then. The Family Histories podcast was presented and produced by me, Andrew Martin, with additional sound production by Elliot Lees. My guest was the fantastic Nathan Dylan Goodwin with John Spike as Shandor Paterfi. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe to get the next one or consider leaving a review. Thank you. Approximately no family historians are harmed in the making of this podcast.